0: all right so this is the friday evening sangha um for uh for the u.s and that uh today uh we have uh, a question uh using the word suffering and that um possibly um we all suffer under a bad translation of the word dukkha that in fact, in the Pali, the word dukkha does not actually mean suffering. That uh, the the translation suffering um, is clear and obvious to me that it comes from people who were in the Christian uh, religion were doing the translations. The original translations were done by British scholars uh and that they didn't bother to even it looks like to me didn't bother to consult uh, the um, the Sri Lankans to find out how to translate things. And so everything that we have not only are, are the translations themselves, but the the lexicons and the dictionaries that they built are now the foundation for the new translators. so when uh, a new monk Wants to learn Pali and starts to do his own translations, he looks up the words in the dictionary or in the lexicon that are co- completely wrong. That um, Thai has a much better translation of of the Pali, but uh, Thai language also is a very difficult language to learn. So. Let's go ahead and start reorganizing um, the, the language that we're using into a more natural language that um, could be understood. In fact, the Buddha in Sutta number 139 in the Majjhima Nikaya actually talks about that we should be using the language of the people. Who are we're talking to rather than using a language that we heard the Dhamma in ourselves. That we have to use the language of the people so that they can understand it easily, and that's one of the major problems with uh, Western Buddhism. Everybody's really interested in uh, the teachings of the Buddha. We just have really, really bad translations, and then all the guys who have been writing all of the Dhamma books have been writing out of their own misunderstanding of the translations. And, and many of the important words are wrongly translated. So rather than giving a long list of uh, <clears throat> wrongly translated words, we'll we'll go off uh, on this one word that's translated as suffering and get started with that one. The word dukkha has an opposite and the opposite of dukkha is sukha. Now in English, there is no opposite to suffering. You're either suffering or you're not suffering. Also, suffering tends to have uh, intense pain or terrible things that are going on. In other words, the word suffering is after things have gone way too far. That a much better translation would be things that just as they begin, because that's where we can cut it off at the root. Once you have Let us say a 500 pound gorilla attacking you. You've got a big trouble, but if you could have killed that gorilla when it was an infant, then you wouldn't have the trouble of, of managing it. And so this is where we have to understand is, is that suffering is a great big gorilla word to where dukkha is not. The word dukkha actually defines as dissatisfaction, and that's an important point, that we just don't like something, we're dissatisfied with it at a very, very small level. Now, um, the the opposite word to dukkha is the word sukha, and that the word sukha also can be um, used in the sense of uh, Dukkha Naroda or the end of our dissatisfaction so that we become satisfied and so actually what we are practicing with Anapanasati surprisingly enough Sukha is the one of the skills that we're developing the development of having the skill of Sukha which means having the skill of learning to be satisfied rather than being dissatisfied now our whole culture is geared towards making the culture better. In other words, by its very definition, human culture is dissatisfying. It's unsatisfactory. We got to fix it. We need a new president. We need new technology. We need new roads, right? All of this is the, uh, the way, uh, and that each one of us learns that in the way of, oh, you've got to work to eat. You got to produce, you got to be a productive member of society. Well, guess what? Society has already produced way too much. The only thing that our society has not produced is happy people. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) We produce lots of coal, lots of gas, lots of um, uh, carbon emissions. Uh, Lots of war, lots of war equipment, but we don't practice or we don't produce a happy culture. All of the people in our culture are dissatisfied with the way things are. And they think because of the way that we have been trained by our parents, our teachers, and all of society, is, is that we are going to get our satisfaction from somewhere out there. That in fact, I'll introduce it as the GREB, G-R-E-B. GREB means government, religion, educate. You don't have to write this down. You've already memorized it. Government, religion, education, and business. All four of those great big industries all have the goal of keeping you dissatisfied. Big business wants to sell you stuff. If you're satisfied and you don't want to buy their product, they go out of business. So they want you to be satisfied. So you'll buy something from them. With, um, education, we are already built in to the, uh, to the point of wanting to know that we're not satisfied with what we know. We want to know more. We want to get it exactly right. We want to figure it out. This is a deep seated, uh, almost an instinctual kind of thing, but it's certainly um, reinforced through the society. Therefore, education has gotten a great to be a great, great big business. Also, the government wants to keep the people dissatisfied, surprisingly enough, especially in democracies. Why? Because if people are satisfied, they won't vote. And this party wants to give you new things that you don't have and you're dissatisfied without them, so you'll vote Democrat. Or um, this party will tell you about all the terrible people and all of the immigrants and all the blacks and all the crime and all the problems of the world and make you really dissatisfied. And then you'll go vote Republican. So, all of this dissatisfaction is a big part of our culture. But the star of the show is religion. Why is that? Because religion depends upon people being dissatisfied. And in fact, how can the priest or even the therapist make any money if everybody is already satisfied? So, Here's the whole point about this uh, issue that the Buddha recognized that he too was dissatisfied. Everybody is dissatisfied. Um, some animals are satisfied sometimes that in fact this, um, I'll use the dog as an example, because the dogs normally spend a whole lot of time in the here. Now and and right here, right now is okay. But the dog will lay uh, with one ear cocked, or they'll they'll be watching to see if there's anything that they should go do. They're also dogs are very very territorial, and so they're they're looking to who's coming into their territory so that they can become dissatisfied and go out and chase the stranger away. So, um. One of the things that we understand is, is that this dissatisfaction ultimately becomes a habit. And after it becomes a habit, the way that we're dissatisfied becomes our destiny. And religions are really, really big on destiny. They want to say that, oh, you've got your destiny, that you're part of God's plan that in fact you cannot get yourself out of a state of dissatisfaction. Who are you to be good? Only God is good. That's out of Romans five. And you have to take Jesus as your savior in order to be saved. You can't save yourself. Your dissatisfaction is built in. They called it original sin. And so this is where religions are. They're, They're the star of the show because they're saying not only are you dissatisfied and we're going to keep you dissatisfied, you're not ever going to get any satisfaction from us until after you're dead. If you're lucky, other than that, if you're lucky, you'll go to heaven, but more than likely, you're going to get into real dissatisfaction called suffering. You're going to go to hell. So if we have that habit of being dissatisfied, then that will create our destiny. The example of that would be he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. I'm sure that everybody has heard that cliche. And it's actually obviously true when you think about it, that if that 20 to 25 year old excellent uh, swordsman continues to go around using his sword, cutting people. By the time he's 85 years old and he's still using that sword, some young bucks going to cut him in half. He's someday going to have to put that sword down or he's going to get killed with one. So this is how we think about every bad habit that we have. If we don't put that bad habit down, it will become our destiny. But we can't change habits very easily. We can't change destinies at all. But what we can change is the little dissatisfaction we have in this present moment. That's what the real teaching of the Buddha is. And yet in Western mentality, we have the idea that, oh, it's suffering. It's great big, and it's going to take a long time to deal with it. The Western mentality has a long schedule, Uh, like education. Wow, does it take a a long time to get an education. And in uh, some places, wow, does it take a long time to vote. But in our case, with uh, the practice of Anapanasati, you can change that dissatisfaction that you're having right now immediately. If you follow the Eightfold Noble Path. Then in fact, this is what the Four Noble Truths is really all about is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda breaks into the Four Noble Truths and that the four, the Second Noble Truth, first off, the, the, let's do the First Noble Truth. The First Noble Truth says that there is dissatisfaction. It actually does exist. But most people think that the dissatisfaction is built in, that it's there. An example would be the story about life sucks and then you die or life is shit. And then you die. That was a bumper sticker back in the 1980s. And when we see that it's not life itself, that is dukkha. That in fact, being alive is quite marvelous. We actually enjoy being alive anytime that you had a choice about, are you going to continue to live the next moment or two, or are you ready to die? Almost everyone will say, oh, I'll live a little bit longer. I'll take a little bit more. And yet the funny thing about it is, is that every one of us has a death sentence that is going to be fulfilled within the next five minutes. Within the next five minutes, you're going to die. Every one of you is going to die. Hello guest. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you.
1: I've never used Skype before. Uh, but well, so, yeah. Don't, don't let me interrupt you. I know I'm here late.
0: All right, I'll, uh, I'll continue on and you can just catch up because basically we're, we're uh, early into the conversation and we're talking about the first noble truth of the Buddha, Dukkha, which okay. is not translated as suffering. That's the wrong translation, giving everybody a bad idea about it because suffering is a huge thing. And Mm -hmm. dissatisfaction is a little thing. And we're talking about a little thing, dissatisfaction. Okay. All right. Now life itself is not Dukkha. Everybody wants to stay alive yet. Everybody's about to die. Everybody's going to be dead. Everybody that's on this call is going to be dead within five minutes unless you take the next breath because the next breath is going to keep you alive if you don't take your next breath you're going to be dead really soon and not only that but you're going to be in a great deal of dissatisfaction almost to the point of suffering if you don't take that breath that you'll start to struggle you really want to take it that in fact this is the quality is we we don't pay much attention to the breathing and yet the breathing is what's keeping us alive. We can go for years and years without sex. We can go years and years without all um, uh, uh, working out or without medical attention. We can go 30 days or more without eating. We can go days without water, but you can't go very long without breathing. And so the breath is really an important quality. And it's also something we can control. Like we can control when we eat. A, a tender infant doesn't have much choice. He can cry, but whether he gets the bottle or not is not his choice. Whether we breathe or not is our choice, except that there is a survival mechanism built in, the self-preservation instinct that's going to take over and going to make you breathe, even if you try to hold your breath. In fact, kids have, have done. Uh, have experimented with that. And guess what's in the suttas the Buddha did too. It's called the breathingless meditation to where you hold your jaw and you hold your nose and you hold your ears and you're not going to let yourself breathe until you pass out. Well, the Buddha actually busted his eardrums that way. But the point that I'm making here is is that life is precious and breathing is precious. It's the only thing that's important. That in fact, after we're dead, nothing is important. So whatever we're thinking that's important now, when we're alive, if we're dead, it's not going to be important. Then the reality is, is that being alive is really the important thing, not whatever we thought was important. Being alive, that's the important thing. So with that, we can understand then that dukkha has nothing to do with life itself being dissatisfying or or dukkha that in fact, that's the best thing that there is. Being alive is much, much more important. Let us say a child sitting next to a teddy bear, that living child is much more important than that stuffed teddy bear. So this is the way that we look at it is life itself is precious. So then where does the dukkha come from if it doesn't come from life itself? The answer is, is that in fact, the second noble truth is so a profound point because it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the human who is dissatisfied in this moment created that dissatisfaction. It didn't come with the territory. It didn't come with being alive. It was manufactured in the mind all right and this is um, the the second noble truth by the way is the basis for most of the teachings of the buddha in the sense of paticca Samapada, is based upon this second noble truth how do we get the mind into suffering is a sequence of events and almost always it has to do with taking a wrong turn out of ignorance I mean, we've all driven the car around looking for something and we wind up in the wrong driveway because we didn't know the territory. And so most of the suffering actually is created by the, by the ignorance itself. Now the Mahayana will say, oh no, the actual dukkha or the actual dissatisfactions come from grasping and clinging. But in fact, no, that's not the case, because there are some things that are worth grasping and clinging and attaching to, like breathing. Making sure that you're breathing, that's a good thing to uh, attach to. Being in the present moment is something worth attaching to. And also attaching to things that are, um, let us say, important for being alive so there are some things that are worthy of attaching to so attachment itself is not the cause of dukkha It's that we ignorantly attach to the wrong things and um the other uh yes you're right alex it's just an old habit of of clinging now we actually formally say that uh the cause of dukkha is greed ill will and ignorance basically it's ignorance has two different qualities to it one is the quality is not knowing in other words we don't know what we don't know but mostly it's knowing not or knowing the wrong thing which means delusion so most of our suffering is actually caused because we think that i'm going to be happy if i get what i want and I wind up not being happy anyway. I was deluded that in fact, our society going back to the grab, that's all propaganda. If you, uh, they, they say, if you buy this car, especially a pocket rocket, a little sports car, it's a chick magnet. And so all the guys go out and they buy that sports car, uh, to get that chick magnet and after they, uh, they buy the car and sign all the papers. Okay. Where's my chick? Didn't come with the car. It was a bait and switch. It was the car dealer who says, uh, by putting the girl, uh, the pretty girl at the car that you, the girl comes with the car. And in fact, no, it doesn't. Not only that, but you're probably not even going to be satisfied with that car for long, especially when the first payment comes due or when it gets into its first ding and now it's not as beautiful as it was. Everything falls apart. Anything that we attach to will fall apart unless we're wise about it. So a whole lot of the teaching of the Buddha has to do with wisdom to be able to see clearly what's worthy of being attaching to and what's not. And so the primary cause of suffering or primary cause of uh, dissatisfaction is ignorance that we think that we'll be better off if we get what we want. So let's pursue that for just a moment. Let us say, that I see something that I like. And if I like it, then I want it. And if I want it, that means that I will be better off with it than I would without it. But right now I'm without it. Therefore, I am now in a state of dissatisfaction because I'm not as complete and whole as I would be if I got what I wanted. This is delusion. We will not be happy if we get what we want. We'll probably have to pay for it. And so wisdom is going to mean to be careful about what we want. And if we can be careful enough to only want the things that are easily and immediately available, then we're going to have a pretty good life. And if we want things that are difficult to get, hard to come by, Perhaps has to uh, have a lot of trouble or maybe even um, lying or deceiving or harming people to get it. Then there's going to be a whole lot of trouble with that. So if we are wise about what we want, then we're going to get what we want easily and we're going to be happy most of the time. So the Buddha then talks about, um, let us get it down to the fundamentals. They call it the four requisites only work with the things that we actually require in order to have a good life. In other words, we don't need a great big house. A little one will do. We don't need a great big salary. A little salary will do. We don't need a a closet full of clothes. One item of clothing at a time will do. We don't need huge hospitals. All we need is just basic enough medication, enough medical uh, attention to be okay. And yet look what medical science has done with um, uh, what bee stings and Botox and um, uh, plastic surgery and um, fitness and all of that kind of stuff is because people are dissatisfied with the way that they look but they're dissatisfied with the way that they look because they've been told how they should look and they believe that. So it's all out of ignorance. In fact, how you look is irrelevant. In fact, here's something that's quite beautiful I like this. And that is, I'm really ugly. I know I'm ugly. I have been ugly my whole life, but that's your problem, not mine, because I don't have a mirror. I don't have to look at it. (laughs) And so it's okay for me that I... I'm ugly. That's your problem. <laughs> That's uh, fucking right. powerful,
1: Samarito. Jesus. Mark. That's huh? really powerful.
0: <laughs> Very powerfully said. Mm-hmm. Well, if we care about what other people think of us, then we're going to be constantly in a state of dissatisfaction because everybody goes around disapproving of everybody else. And so, if we need the approval of other people, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. That, in fact, the key to it all is is that we can start to look for the love in just the right place, which is right here inside. That this is the the way. And so, if we can, ever how we do it, get into a state of satisfaction, then in that moment. We're not in a state of dissatisfaction. So this is the third noble truth is to being free from the dissatisfaction so that you you feel comfortable and happy that basically there's a set of words to, to use with this. And then I'll do that in the next one when we start talking about, well, there is a method that we can come out of the dissatisfaction. But we do it. In this particular moment, because we're not going to be able to change habits easily. Those take a time and we're certainly not going to be able to change a destiny. But destiny is really an attitude anyway. So let's let's start with the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, the important point about the first um, aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path is right viewing are looking most people don't actually investigate and look because they already have figured it out and once we figure something out we turn it into a concept and so we live we go around living in a in conceptualized world that has world views and one worldview you could say uh, say it simply would be i can get away with it i can go and do what i want to do and i'm not going to get caught Or if I get caught, I can get forgiveness. But in either case, I'm going to get away with it. And then there's another worldview that's held by most people. And that is, oh, no, you can't get away with it. We're going to build prisons. We're going to have cops. We're going to have an army. We're going to have uh, accountants and lawyers. And if we can't get you under control that way, Then we're going to hire a priest. We're going to get you. We're going to punish you. You're not going to get away with it. Now, these are the two kind of worldviews that you could see and that these two world views. um, You're you're uh, I know you're a therapist, so let's bring some therapy into this for just a moment. Okay, you can say that the that the worldview of I can get away with it is Eric Burns child ego state and that uh, you can't get away with it is the parent ego state, the critical parent. And that the kind of observation that the Buddha talks about changes it from a concept into an investigation. So here's where the adult comes in to actually open our eyes and take a look at what's going on Within the context and this context is what's happening in the body, what's happening in our feelings, what's happening in our mind and what kind of state of mind do we have? These are the four kinds. And so this is what's worthy of investigation. And so we wake up, we take a look at what's going on, we see it clearly, and now we can make a change. These three items are on the Eightfold Noble Path, and they're basically in this sequence, but I changed the sequence just a little bit for the students to understand that though right view comes first. In other words, everyone here had some right view in order to come in contact with me. But in our moment-by-moment practice, Sati comes first because we have to remember to look. And when we don't remember to look, What that means is is that we're going back onto the automatic pilot or going back into instincts or going back into the habits. So the habits are like the default position based in instinct. So, with the, uh, when we start to actually remember to look, now we're investigating. And we can figure out whether the thoughts that we're having right now, for instance, is this a wholesome thought or is it not a wholesome thought? If this is a wholesome thought, then everything is OK. If it's not a wholesome thought, then that means that we're in some sort of dissatisfaction. Hmm. I, I, I saw a note, but I didn't see what it was. So let's go ahead. It, it said that. It said that Miguel kicked Nick out of the
1: call. Now it says Miguel left. Yeah, I okay. saw that too. But I think probably
0: Nick will come back after being. Yeah, probably just a technical error or something. Okay, so, um, with with this dissatisfaction that is so habit forming, we need to begin to see those things, but we don't see it as the habit. We see it as the event in this present moment that this happens in the present moment. And we can see it if we're looking. So let us say, here I am practicing meditation. And Goenka says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. And everybody who has practiced enough knows that, yes, the mind will wander away. But when we catch the mind wandering away, that's what actually then is a hindrance to us being able to watch the breath or to be in in the present moment. Watching the breath is something that we do in the present moment. So if the mind wanders away, let us say that it wanders away to an argument with Aunt Susie i just had an argument with my aunt yesterday and now here i am sitting in meditation and think or sitting in the posture of meditation thinking about aunt susie and then i i remember to wake up and take a look oh i'm having a thought about the argument that i had with aunt susie well guess what aunt susie is not here right now i don't have to argue with aunt susie right now she's not here wow what a relief it is i don't have to argue with aunt susie right now all right now what i have just done with those thoughts is that i've changed the thought from an argument with aunt susie into recognizing that i don't have to argue with her right now that i can change the thought aha i see that i was arguing with aunt susie and i don't have to do that right now so i'm making a change This is the uh, uh, the April Noble path is to wake up. Look at what we're doing and making a change wake up. Take a look at what we're doing and making a change. So by changing that I'm actually gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. Now, in this case, what I mean by gladdening or brightening the mind, I'm not talking about actually having happy thoughts or happy words, but rather I'm actually changing my uh, attitude or my mental state from being dull, angry at Suti into, oh, I don't have to fight with her right now. She's not here. And so I'm actually brightening the mind itself. Now, one of the things that happens when we talk about this is the student will uh, say, oh, I'm supposed to have happy words to say, and I'll say that. For instance, in meta, they say, may all beings be happy or uh, everything is all right right now. But then they don't believe it because what they're doing is they made a rule out of it. The rule would be, oh, you're supposed to have happy thoughts. You'd better have happy thoughts, kid. If you don't have happy thoughts, you're going to be here. We'll see that kind of structure or coming out of the superego or out of the parent. It's just more, um, criticism rather than changing it, uh, as Bern talked about changing the critical parent into a nurturing parent. So instead of saying you ought not to be, uh, arguing with aunt Susie in your mind right now, you ought to brighten your mind and clean things up. Instead, we can go with that nurturing in the sense of, wow. Isn't it nice that we don't have to think about Susie right now? That's really okay. We don't have to do that. And so we begin to change our attitude into a nurturing attitude. The The nurturing attitude is, is that everything is okay. Everything is fine. You see, one of the things that we do in Western society is, is that we, we think that if I screw up and get caught at it, I'm going to get punished. Therefore, I'm a bad person that should be punished. And that the, the right way to do it would be to nurture ourselves for the failures that we make, rather than criticizing ourselves for it. So here's a fairly good example about that. A tender infant, when it's a newborn, doesn't take a full crap, a big turd until Ow. about two days in. And everybody is really happy when that infant puts out that turd, because that proves then that the, um, the digestive system of this tender infant is working properly, and so it's a celebration and I've seen them, I've seen them several times, I've seen them recently, even. great big yellow turds, that I don't even know that turd's almost as big as a baby, how could that baby put out one that big? But then the baby grows and let us say is 16 years old and now he takes a dump on the floor in the front room. Mommy's not going to be happy and nurturing with that one. She's going to be very critical for her son to come take a dump on the front room floor, right? So mommy made a change. When the infant was tender and young, we nourished. And when the infant grew up into a child, the, the parent became critical and she remained critical for years and years and years. And so the child then is left with, well, where is all of that nurturing that my mommy gave me when I was a little kid? The answer to that is, is that it's up to us now to do that for ourselves. If we can remember to nurture ourselves, including uh, loving and nurturing ourselves warts and all, that we have to learn to love ourselves with our mistakes, because if we do not um, uh, accept our mistakes, then we don't want to see them. We want to reject them. We want to deny the mistakes. And because of that, we can't see them. Well, we can't fix them. But if we bring them in in a nourishing way and look at the fact that we've made mistakes and we've hurt other people and caused problems now, We can fix it because we accept ourselves the way that we are. We can, in fact, confess. We can, in fact, get it fixed if we want to. But here's the problem with confession is is that confession almost requires rehabilitation. Oh, I'm not going to do that anymore or go and sin no more. That's why another reason why we hide it is because if we hide it, we can keep doing it and we don't have to fix it we can still do what we want to do even though it winds up in dissatisfaction so when we go for oh well i'm going to start living a satisfied life that means that i can be satisfied with my mistakes and then i could be satisfied as i fix those mistakes one mistake at a time in this present moment and the mistake that we just had was remembering to have an argument with Aunt Susie because Susie's not here. Why should I think about having an argument with Aunt Susie when Susie's not here? That's kind of um, (laughs) schizophrenic in a way. And yet we do that all the time. We continue arguing with the people that we argued with and then we bring that into the meditation. But when we can catch that, we can say, oh, I don't have to think about Aunt Susie right now. I can be happy and joyful right now. Now, there's another element to it, and that is the body. If the body is sitting comfortable, relaxed, and in a safe place, I do not recommend people going and practicing anapanasati at the police station or at a morgue because those are dangerous places. That's hard mode. <laughs> yeah, that's hard mode, right. We're, we're going to start easy. Got to start yeah. softly. Right. For the four-year-old to learn how to catch balls, dad has to throw the ball underhanded slow at less than 20 miles an hour. A four-year-old is not going to catch a um, big league pitcher's uh, ball thrown at 100 miles an hour. He just can't. We got to start easy. And so this is why we want to do it in private We wanna do it in seclusion so that we can sit there without having to deal with all the pressures of the world. We only have to deal with the one pressure and that is the one between our ears. So as we're sitting there with the body comfortable, with the body in a safe place, we've already got a kind of reality working in our favor. But in the West, they make people sit on the floor. You see, we were raised in furniture, the Asians were raised on the floor we, uh, at, at lunchtime. In fact, we just had a party last night, and they had it out on the ground out here. People don't use chairs in Thailand, um, but they do in the West. And so when the Westerners get off with of their chair and sit on the floor, they become uncomfortable. And now they're supposed to sit there for an hour uncomfortable. And that's not what the Buddha teaches at all. He teaches safe, secure and comfort to get the body safe, secure and comfortable so that then we can practice getting the mind safe, secure and comfortable by talking to ourselves with that. And then the mind and the body can work on the feelings so that we can actually learn to control the way we feel. And in this regard, we're actually practicing and intending to feel safe, feel secure feel comfortable, and then satisfied. Here it goes. Safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied are actually the definitions of the word sukha. that when we have sukka, that we're safe, we're secure, we're comfortable, and we're satisfied. Basically, it's really hard to feel satisfied when you're being chased down the road, when you're in a dangerous situation, it's hard to feel satisfied. Only people like Bugs Bunny can do that. And he's a cartoon character. So, it's also difficult to feel satisfied when we're uncomfortable. And this is the problem with many ways of practicing meditation. is because they wind up being uncomfortable rather than being comfortable. So, we set all of it up so that the body is safe, secure, and comfortable, the mind becomes safe, secure, and comfortable, and then we can train ourselves that way to feel safe, secure, and comfortable, and with that, satisfaction. And guess what? That's all it takes, then, to get out of the first noble truth of being in dukkha, in dissatisfaction, into the third noble truth. It can be done within a second or two. All we have to do is wake up and recognize I'm having an argument in my mind with Aunt Susie and Aunt Susie's not here. Wow, what a relief that is. Susie's not here. (laughs) Susie's not here. I don't have to do anything. Wow, I, I feel really comfortable and satisfied and safe now because Susie's not here. So this is the way that we begin to practice is recognizing... That we're in the present moment and the present moment is safe and secure and comfortable and satisfying that it was in the past where things were dangerous and uncomfortable and are uh, dissatisfying and perhaps off into the future. Things are going to be that way too, but the past and the future are not something that we're going to pay much attention to anymore. We're going to actually stop attaching to the past and start attaching to the present moment because the present moment is when we feel safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And so these are three items on the Eightfold Noble Path. And look already how much progress we've made. Now, uh, to round things out, um, let's, let's bring in the concept that there are two kinds of people or two kinds of Buddhists, let's say. The first kind of Buddhist would be the one who is raised Buddhist their whole life. They attend the wad and do the things that people do. And then there are the Western Buddhists who come to Buddhism as an adult, but they they got their information from the the people who were raised Buddhists their whole life. So those two kinds are in one group. And then there is another group that is a small group. And that group is a group of nobles. You can actually think about it in this regard, that the, uh, the army, the United States army, they recruit and they go out and they get and they find and they want a big army of millions and millions. Okay, But the Marines, they only want a few good men. This is a little chauvinist but now they want some good women too. But the point is, is that that's how the nobility of Buddhism, those who really know the, the teaching of the Buddha are the, the vast minority. There's not many of them. Why is that is because most people do not think that they can do it. That in fact, the way that our society is trained is is that you can't fix yourself and most people are stuck at that place we can't fix ourselves which means now the doubt is about well who can i get to fix me some look for the religion to fix them others look for the government to fix them others look for an education to fix them others look at business to fix them but mostly it Alex your microphone is very noisy
1: oh I'm sorry about that that's my desk going up I'll yeah it's, turn it's... your
0: mic off when you're moving stuff around like that all right so all right so uh, so the real point is that nobody is going to fix us and that is a terrible thing for people to understand almost nobody gets to the point that oh no Nobody's gonna fix me, I'm gonna to have to do it myself. This is actually the teaching of the second noble truth. Anybody who fully understands this, uh, the second noble truth has to come to the point that if all of this dukkha, if all of this dissatisfaction is manufactured between the ears, then the only way for it to come to a stop is, is it's gonna to have to stop between the ears. It's not gonna be coming from the outside any place. Not from a religion, not from business, not from government, not from getting a good education. Nope. It's going to have to be repaired here. We're going to have to change that wisdom, or excuse me, change that ignorance into wisdom. We're going to have to investigate. And that's what the investigation is all about, is to see this thought so that we can change this thought. Now, a lot of Western Buddhism actually um, is only partially there. For instance, the Mahasi method, they say, oh, you have to wake up and you look. But then the next thing to do is wake up and look again, wake up and see the dukkha, wake up and see more dukkha, wake up and see even more dukkha. And eventually the student begins to wake up and see that he's living in his own city dump. Because they're not taking that third step of Fixing this thought, making a change to this thought right here right now with the right effort to change it from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. So this is all that's necessary is changing that thought from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought, time after time after time after time again because we built those habits up. Basically, we built our habits by talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now we're going to start talking ourselves into feeling good, but it's not from that critical point of view of, oh, you should remove those hindrances. Oh, you should feel good. Rather, it's allowing yourself through nurturing to actually feel good. That it's okay. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. Now, that brings up the second level of doubt. There's a second kind of doubt in there. And that is, is that once we figure out, is nobody's going to help us, we're going to have to do it ourselves. Now, the next doubt is, are we up to the task? Can we do this? Because, I mean, we've been failing at meditation for years. I've got students, or I've had people tell me that they've been meditating for 50 years and they still haven't gotten anything out of it. Uh, except a lot of knowledge. And don't argue with guys who have been practicing for 50 years that they know all about it, and they'll really drive it right down your throat hard big time if you disagree with them. But they still don't know what they're doing. So the whole point then is <laughs> that we have to practice in a way that gives us the the uh the belief or the understanding that we can do this so it's actually quite simple i mean uh everybody goes around having this thought and then that thought and then this thought over here and we just go around sometimes it's a cycle and we'll have nine or ten things that we think about and they're just in order and they'll just pop up and here we go but the important point is is that we can change the mind we do that all the time that we're sitting here eating dinner and and we hear a sound uh, a big noise and we stop eating and we go see what that is we just changed our mind because something a, a noise happened and that happened and we don't even recognize it because a lot of that stuff happens very fast but what really is going on here is now we're beginning to understand that it's actually quite easy because the mind is so easily changed it's quite easy to change the mind from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. And then it'll change right back to that unwholesome thought. Never mind, we just changed it one time to a wholesome thought. We can do that again. And again and again that uh, a lot of the practice has to do with repetition. but that's true with anything. You're not going to learn to play the piano unless you actually sit there and repeat over and over again, doing that scale, doing those chords, etc or playing any musical instrument, but that's also true for any sport or anything that we learn to do, we have to practice at it. I remember when uh, I was a little kid that I wanted, my mom did all of our clothing. She uh, sewed on her sewing machine and I wanted to sew too, but I did it when she wasn't there. So I, I would watch her what she'd do and then I'd go to the sewing machine and make a great big mess because it was the first time, but she says, oh, you have to hold the the, the material so that it won't bunch up like that. And then you can do it. And so by showing me how and me practicing, I learned then that I could sew. Automobile mechanics are the same thing. The reason why we take our cars to the mechanic nowadays is not because they're so complicated. In fact, they are even easier to fix now than they were years ago. It is the fact that years ago, there were no mechanics in uh, rural South Carolina. We had to fix our own gear, and we learned to do that. And so uh, nowadays, people don't fix their own cars because it's easy just to get somebody else to do it. But inside of our own mind, there's no way that we can do that. We're going to have to fix that ourselves. But there's a skill level that we have to bring up to that. And by practicing and gaining some success and saying, yes, I can change this thought. I don't have to think about Susie right now. I don't have to think about (laughs) anything right now. I can just sit here and relax. And when we do that, then we say, by golly, I can relax. I can change my thoughts. And this gives us a, a little bit of a feeling of being success. I can get myself relaxed. I can get myself, in fact, into a state of satisfaction. And once we're able to get ourselves into satisfaction over and over again, we begin to feel successful. This is the fourth item on the list of um, the Eightfold Noble Path. And the Pali word is Sama and, and it's basically changing the attitude from being a victim to a winner. I'm I'm sure uh, Anna that you're familiar with Fritz Pearls. Top dog and underdog. That's what we're talking about here. Okay. That we are all born as an underdog. We are all born as a victim. We are all born uncapable. All we can do is suck. But whether the tit gets in the mouth or whether a bottle gets in the mouth is not up to the infant. That's something that somebody does for them. We can't feed ourselves. We can't dress ourselves. And when we get to the point that we uh, we have to learn to walk on our own, and that's hard. And somebody's going to hold our hand when we go down. And those are big people up there. And so we start off and stay in that victim's position, and we grow up in that victim's position. Looking for help, looking for love in all the wrong places, and living a life of dissatisfaction. When can we change that? Well, this is what this practice is all about: is let's practice something that we can get good at, and then we feel like that we can do something. We become satisfied. We become not just satisfied, but successful at being satisfied. And when we become successful, that changes our attitude from being a loser into being a winner. And that's basically what this is all about. The Buddha was known as a lion. He's got his mojo. He's got confidence. And that's what we're building. We're we're building that confidence that you can live your life happily. No doubt about it because you've learned how to do that. It's a skill to be developed. Now, um, going to the point about, um, um, therapy, I was in therapy for, for quite a while, and I noticed that a lot of people who were in therapy with me, because we did a lot of groups back then is that they could figure out what it was that needed to be changed but they wouldn't put the effort in to make the change. And so week after week, they'd come back with the same problems. But I was actually wanting to make some change. I, in fact, I thought that therapy was extraordinarily expensive. I could afford it, but I didn't want to, it was too expensive. So I'm going to get best value out of that. So I actually started to practice to get that stuff fixed. But most therapists don't insist with that. There are some therapists that are beginning to teach the people to do meditation, which means that the therapist may be able to help the people to see what's going on. But the making the change, they'll have to do that themselves. And so uh, a good psychotherapist would actually give uh, their clients a project or something to do Just like a piano teacher. If you go to the piano teacher and she gives you a lesson, if you don't practice during that next week, then the piano teacher is gonna get frustrated because you can't play the piece that that she assigned to you. Psychotherapy needs to be in that same way that the therapist can actually require the people to do the practice. That that's what we're actually encouraging here on our Sangha group is to encourage people to practice. Isn't that right? Alex, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we got to practice this stuff over and over and over again. Because that's...
1: What was that Alex? I said Nick does too. He's been teaching me this stuff too for the past four months. He's he's killer.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's the Dhamma killer. Teamwork makes a dream
0: work. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, Nick, I'm glad to meet you. Good to meet you, too. Good. Uh, Alex, is uh, Keyshawn there behind you somewhere? Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah he's there. <laughs> he's sleeping. Okay. Oh, he's asleep now. Yeah, I was talking to him earlier. Oh, no, he's oh. not sleeping. He's he's cozying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. He says,
1: "Has my presence been requested?" No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think he was getting excited.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so anyway, we started this whole conversation based upon just the word suffering. And in this uh, method that, that, that comes from the Buddha, there's really not, not any suffering there that what we're doing is seeing the way that we're thinking right now and making an improvement. You could go so far as to say that any thought that we're thinking right now could be improved. If we're having thoughts of cruelty, we can change that from cruelty to friendship. Any thought that we're having could be improved. And if we finally came up with a thought that was so marvelous and so wonderful that it couldn't be improved, then we can congratulate ourselves for such a thought like that and then prove it anyway by congratulating for having such a marvelous thought. So in that regard, any thought that we have couldn't be improved. I don't have to think that I can think something better than that is the method that we have. And we keep practicing, changing that thought, whatever it is, we look at it. We remember to look and we look at it and make a change. Coming how to make
1: people to be disciplined? How I can, I mean I'm trying, but how make what you need to do to make people to self-discipline? They don't want to be it's not fun to discipline themselves, especially in meditation. What to do?
0: Well, it 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 is discipline only in the beginning because the people don't see the value of it. Okay here, take this medicine and they say, okay, well, I'll take the medicine. And they take that medicine and it's something maybe like laughing gas or something, wow, that's good medicine and give me some more. Okay. So this is the way it's not discipline. It's the fact that people are getting benefit. They're getting uh, value out of being able to change their mind. And Alex has been around for a while he was able to see that. both the potential and the actual small amounts but he when he kept going he began to get real benefit from it but um, the discipline comes from doing something without getting any benefit and doing it again without getting any benefit and doing it again hoping that we'll get some benefit and then doing it again and maybe a little tiny little bit of benefit okay So, that's why the discipline, and this is one of the reasons why 90% of the human population are not concert pianists. I mean, how many people do you know, actually know, uh, uh, well, we're talking about piano, let's see, Uh, okay, the Emperor's Concerto. Beethoven's, uh, I think it's the third um, piano concerto. Almost nobody knows that. Why is that? because it takes, they say, discipline. But in fact, if a good piano teacher, she can give lighthearted, easy things that the student can play and he likes to play them. He likes to play the music. But in fact, I had a teacher who I, I think that I was 13 at the time and she gave me a piece of music to learn to play that changed my entire attitude about music and the piece that she gave me to learn to play actually had other things other lessons for a 13 year old boy and the the piece of the music that she gave me to play was there's lots of good fish in the sea the sea there's lots of good fish in the sea okay so it was a happy tune it's a vibrant tune it's up and i wanted to play that song and that because i wanted to play it it wasn't discipline anymore it was practiced because I could see the benefit in the results.
1: So then
0: it was good in the beginning. Exactly. Wow, Nick. I'm, I'm impressed. Okay, that this is in fact the teaching of the Buddha. That's an important one. This point that he's making is, is that the teaching of the Buddha is good in the beginning. It's good in the middle and it's good in the end when it's taught correctly with the right phrasing, meaning, and timing. And that's the problem is, is that most Westerners, when they hear Buddhism, they can hear that it's got some value, but they wind up when they're practicing, they're not getting any good benefit out of it in the beginning. It's hard work. Oh, it's so hard, especially the Mahasi method. It is so hard until they start putting in the right effort and making the change. And that right effort of making the change of, wow, I feel so relieved right in the very beginning. I'm thinking about that problem that I had with Aunt Susie and throwing that out, I immediately get relief. I don't have to think about her. But until I knew this, I wouldn't have thought, oh, well, the reason I feel so bad right now is because I'm still worried about Aunt Susie and my argument with her yesterday. But if I can throw that stuff out, now I could be happy in this present moment. And we can teach that to stuff. We can teach people that. Yeah. Yes, Alex. Go ahead. Yeah. I,
1: I was just gonna add to what you said. The the mountains become valleys, and valleys become hills, and the hills become little ant hills. <laughs> it just, you know, it gets like smaller and smaller and smaller.
0: Uh-huh. And what is getting smaller? The importance. Mm-hmm important yeah things are not important anymore you see the reason that I had that argument in in my mind right now about aunt Susie is because I thought that important I thought that that argument with her is important and I got to go finish that for I've got to win that argument I'm going to tell her all about it and I'm sitting here in meditation thinking about all the stuff I use the example of um uh, uh of aunt Susie but it could very well be your wife your boyfriend your husband um uh people that we're closest to when we're thinking about them we're generally not thinking about them in the best of terms we're thinking of them in terms of they're broken like my my argument with aunt susie aunt susie's broken and boy i'm gonna fix her as you can see how much suffering that is, and the fact the real reality is is that Aunt Susie's not broken. It's my mind that's broken about Aunt Susie. And if I can change my mind about Aunt Susie right here and right now, I don't have to have that argument with her. I can be without that. And so whatever it is that the students or the therapist uh, clients are, are are thinking about, they can change those unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. And we practice that over and over and over again. And pretty soon we begin to have much more uh, frequently having wholesome thoughts and less frequently having unwholesome thoughts. But the best part of that is, is that once we recognize that I can change my mind, now we have that confidence. And that confidence builds. We turn from being the bottom dog or the underdog in our own minds for the entire society to being on top of the world i'm the boss here president reagan or president no- nixon or president uh who's the president now trump no 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 biden whoever biden? the president is i'm better than he is because i can sit here on my porch and have fun and those guys sitting in the white house are miserable they are so <laughs> unhappy <laughs> They've got so much work to do and so many enemies to deal with. And I don't have to think about any of that stuff. So I'm a whole lot better off than that president. <laughs> and when we recognize that we can become, uh, we like on the top of the world. So I'll leave you with this last analogy on that. And that is, is that the story is, is that everyone, every one of us is an emperor of our own pile of dirt, but most people see them buried under their pile of dirt a few people especially um uh well there's a certain class of people in various things in martial arts and sports all over the place are the kind of people who are crying their best to crawl out of their pile of dirt you could say that this is in fact the Mahasi method they're not just buried under the pile of dirt they're struggling to get out of it <laughs> Then there's the third option, and that is just sit on top of the world. Be above the world. Be above it all. And guess what? This is only an attitude change, and you can change your attitude immediately from being an underdog, being buried under all of your crap, into sitting on top of the world. It's merely an attitude change, and you can change your attitude that best. You can't. Yeah, I see that smile. Finally, I get a smile out of Anna. (laughs) So this is what it's really all about is making a change and congratulating ourselves for making that change. And we do that over and over again. And that's, that's life. We're no longer in the state of dissatisfaction. We're in the state of satisfaction. We're, we're the emperor of our own life. You're the boss of your feelings. See, most people think that they are uh, um, out of control. I feel bad. I feel sad. They identify I am the feelings. And what we're doing here is we're actually becoming the observer of the feelings. I am not the feeling of anger. I see the anger. I see, uh aha, I see you, angry. Uh Aha, I see your argument with uh, Aunt Susie. The reason is because I'm richly angry at her. But it's not me. I am angry, but rather I see the anger that's there. And so by seeing this anger, we recognize I am not the anger. I'm the emperor. I'm the boss here and anger. What's that? That's just a little feeling and I can just manipulate that. That It is not my boss. Most people think that they're out of control of their feelings, that the feelings themselves are the boss. No, it's just a habit. But we can change that habit right here the habit of smoking can be stopped by simply taking that cigarette and putting it out that's all it takes just put it out mid-smoke (laughs) okay i don't need this smoke and just put it out that uh, the word "stop" is in fact uh, one that we, that we use. There's some suttas. There's one where uh, the Buddha says, "And Gulimala, I have stopped. You stop too." Oh, yeah. Just stop. Stop thinking that out, Susie. Stop chasing people around and just sit down and enjoy your life. because you're the emperor.
1: So this is a religion idea that uh, keep your mind in hell and be happy, or it's just a practice. So you're not practicing safe place. You just take yourself in some police station. So kind of saints, It's just those who able to practice in police stations, or it's a religion trick of you must make, keep your, uh, your mind in the hell.
0: Well, once you get the confidence, once you get the skill of being able to do that on your own, then you can go out and do it in the public but not first because it's too heavy all right another way of talking about it which is also uh part of the way that the buddha mentions it is is that uh, uh the the sutra by the way is called the half sutra that's the name of the sutta. half and ananda comes to the buddha and he says uh just told me that friendship is half the Dhamma and the Buddha says oh no it's not friendship is all we teach it's the whole Dhamma the entire teaching of the Dhamma is about friendship and in the beginning the first friendship is learning to become friends with ourselves warts and all to nurture ourselves to be friends with ourselves to look for love in the, all the right places right in here once we're learning to make friends with ourselves and we are truly friends with ourselves, cause we're the champion of friendship. Now we can be friends with anybody. Doesn't matter whether they're, I mean, they can be a, a Russian czar or a president or a street bomb. Anybody doesn't matter. I can be friendly with them. I can be friends with anybody because I know how to be friends. I've, I've, taught myself now basically you've heard of meta meditation that's what that practice is is learning how to be friends with yourself so that you can be friends with other people you learn how to be kind to yourself so that you can be kind with other people we learn to stop being critical with ourselves so that we can be stop being critical with aunt susie's We stop being critical and start nurturing. If I can learn to nurture myself and care for myself, then I can nurture and care others, even if they want to argue with me. And so that's the whole teaching and it's it's done inside and outside. In fact, uh, in in one of the suttas, the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, they make that distinction on every different point, internal and external, internal and external. We can hear things on the outside, we can hear things on the inside. Everything is both internal and external. So if we learn to be friends on the inside, then we can practice being friends with people on the outside. But that that learning to become friends with is requires practice because we've already been practicing since about the age of four or five to be critical with ourselves, because that's what mommy started doing. Go to school, clean your house, clean your room, put your toys away, do your ABCs, do your one, two, threes, and we wind up being in what we call a dumb animal state. We go around doing what we're told to do without getting much benefit out of it. And so the first grader says, well, why should I have to learn to read? Why should I learn the ABCs? And the answer to that is Well, you learn the ABCs so you can learn to read in the second grade. Well, why do I want to learn to read so that you can do your, so you can read your history book in the fourth grade? Well, why should I learn to read? You know, the point is, is that there's never point to it. The reason you learn this skill is for the next skill is for the next skill, but there's never any benefit out of the education. It's just more work or, uh, requires discipline because there's no reward here we're adding the reward back right here right now i can take a deep breath and feel good and recognize and see the 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 good value of it right here right now the buddhist teaching is good in the beginning guess what education is not good in the beginning it is not good in the middle and if you're doing a phd thesis it's not good in the end But the Buddhist teaching is, and that's why. That answers that question strongly, Anna, is is that it doesn't require discipline. It requires success. So we have to teach them to do it right the first time. So I would recommend everybody just take a deep breath and say, well, I don't have to argue with anybody right now. Everything is okay right now. Ah. We can put a big smile on and recognize that right now is okay. And that's all we have to practice is right now is okay. And if we practice that, then even for the for the therapist, sometimes people come in and really get on your nerves, right? The answer to that is, well, right now I'm okay. Yeah, sometimes people come in and they get on my nerves, but even when they're on my nerves, I can still say, He's not on my nerves right now. I can handle this. I'm the, I'm the competent one. I'm a good therapist. I can handle things like this. No problem. And so I don't wind up getting frustrated at the client. But in fact, I can begin to start joking with the client and say, "Ha ha! I see that again and again, and again, and again, and I don't have to get frustrated. Alex will tell you that he's come back with me with the same problem over and over and over again. I don't get frustrated. We just deal with it again (laughs) because we're slow at learning and that's okay. And so that's all there really is to it is, is that it doesn't take any dedication or any effort that we have to do it without getting the result no we're looking for immediate and instant value and we can see it immediately oh wow i don't have to think about aunt susie for example or another one would be um oh here's an example imagine that you were suing someone that they had taken thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands maybe a million dollars And you want to sue him and get get retribution and reward. And then you talk to the the lawyer and the lawyer is trying to talk you out of it. No, the court costs you so much and we'll have to get a jury and, you know, things like that. And finally, the guy comes to the conclusion, well, I'm going to have to drop this case. I just can't do it. And then the week after that, he starts thinking about that case after he's informed the lawyer and closed the case. And he thinks about the case again. But this time he says, wow, I don't have to do that case. That whole thing is empty. I don't have to see those people. I don't have to think about that guy. I don't have to do that anymore. Drop it. And now I can feel good. But so long as I'm doing that case, so long as I'm pursuing that case and and opening the court case and filing all of those papers and paying that lawyer dollars a month or whatever like that I'm in misery thinking that if I do win the case I'll be happy during in fact while I'm processing the case I am miserable and the right thing to do is to stop to drop the case you're not going to teach that dude lessons anyway and you're probably even if you sue him you see here's the thing that I've just learned on the uh, about um the court cases that they've had so many of and that is is that if you can settle you get the money if it has to be um uh done in court and the law and the uh the jury uh determines how much the likelihood of you getting that money is very low you won't you're not going to get the money even though the court said that you get the money But in a settlement, in order for it to actually settle, the settlement is you get the money. You get the money in the settlement or you continue the case. But if you continue the case and you win the case and the court determines or the jury determines how much money, you're probably not going to get it. Because he doesn't want to give it. He wants to give you the money when you're um, negotiating for a settlement. He wants to give you the money to get out of the court case. But if he's lost that court case he's not about to give you any money not happily you're going to probably have to sue him three or four times exactly that's what happened with oj Simpson. they got the money awarded to them by a trial but he didn't pay it the same thing happened with Al, uh what's his name uh one of the guys who was uh lying about um um uh the the kids shooting. Oh, they just- took him. Yes, yes, that's the one. Okay, and they took him to court and they won, and now he's doing everything he can to hide the money. If he had settled with him, he'd have had to pay. So when you think about that, even if you take that course uh, case all the way through court, you're still probably not going to get any money out of it. So why stop? Why do you? Why would we sue? Just stop. And now I can feel good. Okay, so this is a way of looking at things. is that many things that we want to do because we think if we do this and it's going to take months or years or whatever like that to get it done, we're not going to be any better off after we get it done. And we still don't feel really good. So why not just quit and feel good intentionally right now? Wow, I'm glad I don't have to do that. So this is um, um, the actual practice of Anapanasati is to come to the point of right now of allowing yourself to feel good. Feel what I mean by feeling good, safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, and then successful. And there's one more step, by the way, after that, all right? So imagine that the, the bucket is empty. It's not just empty, but it's hot so this is a victim bucket it's got no water and they teach meta meditation in the sense that once you start getting some water into the bucket you can begin to give it away but that's not the right way to do it at all the right way to do it is keep putting bu- water in the bucket water in the bucket Keep putting it in, keep getting yourself joy, get more and more and more. And pretty soon after it gets about half full or more, we're recognizing, Hey, we can fill buckets. We know how to do that. Look at this one it's half full already. And then we go a little bit more and a little bit more. And now the bucket is full. But we're good at putting more water in the bucket. Now we really know how to do it, but all the water that we put in the bucket now overflows over the top of the bucket and it goes all over the place. Now, that's real metta, and that's also real wealth. Real wealth is the wealth that just spreads all over the place because you can't help it. You've got too much of it. The bucket is too full. Your cup runneth over. This is the way that we were practicing Anapanasati is so you get to that point that you feel wealthy. You feel wealthy after you feel completely successful. And we feel successful after we feel satisfied. So it goes like this, safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, successful, and then wealthy. And now that's being on top of the world. But we're not talking about money anywhere in this. It's got nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with how you feel. Your attitude. This is what we're working on is to getting the attitude of being a winner. Being exuberant, being overflowing. That's the way. And we practice that. Alex, go ahead.
1: Yeah, Dorado, this is uh, so great. I love hearing uh, the wealthy. Just I love it. You overflowing. <laughs> you're an overflowing cup. It's just that that makes so much sense. I love that. Um, I'm curious what. Suggestions you might have to deal with like when we're in public and we're feeling really 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 good and we're smiling really really big and no one else is it's uh, sometimes that can be
0: uncomfortable and well so yeah. wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute how can smiling and having a good time be uncomfortable. The answer to that is, is that the thought that you had is, is that somehow you're responsible for those other people, that y- your smile should be a good enough smile that they smile too.
1: Yeah, or that like, the thought that comes up is like, people are going to see this as weird, or they're going to start looking at me, you know. So, I mean, and I, I see the thought, but it still is like, ah! <laughs> it's it's like the the great big feelings and the great big smile get subdued just from being in public. Like it's like a trigger response, you know. It's I, I feel like it's something prior to thought. I, I but I'm not trying to argue.
0: No, <laughs> no. I understand what you're saying. And okay. here's something that I've heard before, and that mm-hmm. is is that all. Oh, my smiles in public will not be well received
1: oh that too yeah that one too probably yeah
0: well that's what you're talking about that my smiling or my uh, my positive attitude is not going to be well received okay where did that come from because that's just a concept the reality of the situation has to be tested Hmm. that i i do that on a regular basis I don't go out often but when I do go out I am happy and cheerful and it always gives a good response back from people they Mm -hmm. like it they like being uh uh treated well then in fact one of the students just told me uh when I said uh that we have to if a cop comes up Stop being afraid of the cop and treat him like a human. And one of the guys says, oh, if you did that, they'll bust you immediately because you th- they think that you're trying to manipulate them by being kind to them. The answer to that is no. Not necessarily. In fact, generally no. Uh, that if you are trying to take the mickey out of a cop, he'll know that. But if you're genuinely... Uh, good to the cop over one or two or three minutes even he'll come out of that belligerent state and I would use the word or use the situation with the cop because they're the one who is most likely to be angry and unhappy with you to where everybody else out on the street is 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 not so if you can be happy and joyful in front of a cop and let them go through their anger moment and you still are happy and and uh, confident and uh, joyful with him he will change everybody will change everybody likes to be liked why well we know why but the point is is that we don't get that in public everybody's in their own little misery world in public um Uh, The example in this case would be, well, people will say, well, I don't want to have my video taken and have my picture up on the Internet on a video. And the answer to that is nobody's looking at anybody's pictures on the Internet. They come to hear the talk and they like to hear the questions and whatnot like that. But no one is going through these thousands of videos looking for a particular person sitting and listening. There's nothing to that. It's true. Right? <laughs> that in fact, no, uh, Alex, you you know some of the guys uh, because of the Skype group. There's quite a crowd of us there. But if you just watched a video, are you going to remember the guy whose uh, a picture or uh, is there on the video? No, we're not going to remember that kind of thing. Everybody is selfish. Everybody is looking at their own situation. And they think then, because I'm selfish, because I am the center of my own attention, that means that everybody else is going to be paying attention to me. The answer to that is no, everybody else is paying attention to themselves. Hello, Kishan.
1: I was going to say that uh, when I'm on the train in the morning with all the commuters and I'm doing Anapanasaki, my smile is like so big. Oh, really? And I just... But I just assume nobody's looking at me. Everybody's on their phone nobody's paying attention. Nobody sees what's going on. <laughs> if they were to look nope. up, they'd be a real happy guy, but they don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, even if you're a happy guy, it don't mean anything to you or to them.
1: Yeah, exactly. They don't care.
0: They don't care. Alex, nobody cares. You go around with your smile on. Now, here's the thing that's most important is, is that your smile is your business. Your mind is your business. Your life is your business, but their life is not your business. Those other people on that uh, uh, train Keyshawn with you are not your business. The government is not your business. Global warming is not your business. The price of gasoline is not your business. What is your business? is to be happy no matter what's going on but most people think oh well i've got to go fix global warming and when i fix global warming then i can be happy will be dead <laughs> well no another way of looking at it is global warming means things are going to be hot can i enjoy heat <laughs> yeah You're so wrong. what You're is the sea level rise? Right? pardon what was that, Nick? My mom's
1: always complaining, like, "Oh, it's it's so so warm. It shouldn't be this warm." I'm like, "It's nice. It's warm.
0: <laughs> it's nice and warm." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So, whether it's hot or warm, or whether we like the uh, the temperature of the air, is a matter of attitude. Whether you care. Yeah. Why? Why should we care how hot it is? The only thing that I care about is, can I handle it? Am I the boss here? And when I'm a victim of the heat, that's when we want to change the heat so that I'm not a victim of it. But if I'm a winner, if I'm on charge, if I'm the boss here, let it be hot. Or let it snow, let it snow. I don't care. It's not my business. What is my business? Having my mind straightened out, being happy. But in fact, that's what most people would want out of psychotherapy and they don't get it because they don't practice because they don't have. uh, um, They don't have the instructions and the instructions are actually quite easy. Never mind. Start again. That's 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 all the instructions that we need.
1: They have instructions. They don't do it.
0: They don't do it, huh? Well, have them do it right in front of you. They do it, and they feel good, and they don't do it. And then they don't do it later. They forget. No saucy. No saucing.
1: Well, it keeps you employed at least.
0: Mm. (laughs) Actually... There's uh, Anna, we don't have time for it today, but uh, I hope that I see you again. There's more that we can uh, talk about. Uh, most specifically in that statement of what you just made is they don't do it. They'll do it in front of me and they don't do it. All right. And what we need to do is investigate your attitude right then and there. Right here, this attitude of they don't do it. All right. <laughs> and, and you don't and you don't feel good. And neither do they. So we need to make a change in there someplace. That in fact, I can imagine that if a therapist sent uh, had that attitude about every client they had, that they're not successful. with This client, that client, The science don't do this. They don't have that. And they won't do that. It's very much like the doctor who has patients and they die one after another, after another, after another, right? Failure, failure, one failure after another, after another causes burnout. What's the point? Psychologists, nurses, doctors, police, social workers all get burned out. I've even seen lawyers get burned out. Why? Because they're not making the change they need to make and they wind up having one failure after another, after another. Then in fact, the word in the potty that we're talking about here is the word opaque. Can you handle failure? You can, if you're the winner here, if you're the boss, but if you're a victim, victims can't handle failure. They get burned out. They try and they fail and eventually they quit. Don't quit, Anna. Don't quit your therapy, your therapist's job. Don't do it. Figure out how to do it correctly so that you get good benefit. So that you can help people and they do what you say. And we can work with that at a later time. Don't get burned out between then and now.
1: Not yet, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet.
0: <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think it's just been a good call. Uh, Nick is really good to uh, to see you. I hope to see you again too. Also. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Lots of fun. All right. uh, well, we'll see. You got. Go ahead, Keyshawn. I was going to say, Don you for
1: for five minutes. I got one uh, website piece after the call.
0: All right, why don't you just call me right after this call finishes?
1: Excellent. Okay.
0: Uh, okay. Anna, good to meet you. I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, good to meet and you, Anna. Yes. Good to meet you. See you, Alex. Night,
1: guys. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, guys.